0: We see this man, and I said, okay, I guess I'll heal him. Um, it's like we, we didn't have radio equipment. We didn't have a landing strip nearby. There were no, it was hours away from any community that would have had a hospital. And Stephen's saying, we've got to get him to a hospital. He needs brain scans. He's going to need to have some pressure relief from his brain. I said, no, I think if we take him out of the jungle, which is his relative, may die and it was interpreted back to me that yes you can't take him away from you so i just i decided i would be with him and give some loving kind presence Mm -hmm. to his life one of the basic tenets of shamanism is that the first thing you do with any patient is you remove all obstacles to healing and almost always fear is the number one obstacle
1: Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and I have a wonderful guest today. Again, somebody uh, we are just meeting, his name is Gerald Blanchard. Gerald, welcome, welcome.
0: Thank you, I'm glad to be with you, Raghu.
1: Yeah, no, it's great. And Gerald has uh, a wonderful book, Awakening the Healing Soul, Indigenous Wisdom for Today's World, which uh, those of you who are regular listeners to Mind Rolling, I love to speak to to people who really um, are engaged in uh, giving us uh, first an idea that indigenous wisdom is important and can help us move through the next very uncertain years related, of course, to the environment, but related to the most simple of things like our polarization in this country, to name just one uh, thing that I believe this kind of wisdom can truly, uh, affect us in transformational ways. So thank you for this really. Um, why don't you just, uh, we don't know each other. So how did you get to where, uh, you were, um, drawn to this life's work and it, and I believe it has been very much a life's work. Um, and uh, yeah, just a little bit of your formative years, and to you know, I usually ask people, what are the things that made them realize that they are not their thoughts, stories, egos, minds, that there is another realm that is perhaps um, more of the truth of who we are. How did you How did you come to that?
0: Well, I had rather conventional training. In in psychology along the way. And that seemed to interfere with my own mental health. And then I moved away from psychology and spent more time in anthropology and was seeing the connectedness between all of us uh, from culture to culture, person to person, moving from the me to the the we, moving away from Mm -hmm. this ego and this vita I was trying to accumulate over time. And yet, I think since a late teenager, I always had an interest in, to start with, Native American culture. Because I felt something was missing from my religious upbringing, from my spiritual upbringing. And there was something there more land-based and connected with nature that appealed to me. And that spirit uh, was infused in me and remained there for quite a long time. But then I, I got into the field of psychology. And psychotherapy worked in the family violence field for a long, long time uh, with child abuse then sexual abuse, then working in prisons with rapists, eventually working with serial killers, mass murderers. And um, while I was doing that, a shift occurred one time for me that was significant. I was in a penitentiary, a federal penitentiary in Missouri working with a man who I won't even tell you all of what he did, but he was a serial killer of children. That's enough said, I believe. Way. And with that, I was asked to do a mitigation report on him, which is what uh, oftentimes Quakers are called to do, where we try and explain to a jury when somebody's facing the death penalty, we explain how did this person become this way? What is their story? And so I'd spend time with extraordinarily violent men trying to figure out what took them down the path they were on, uh, if nothing else, just to prevent other people from going down similar paths. But in that prison in Missouri, I spent four days uh, with this man who is now facing death row in a state where it's just an automatic thing. I mean, they it's like a processing line when you're there and you're up for the death penalty they they just make it happen fast I spent four days with him and I remember the fourth day I went back to St. Louis to get a motel and a nice meal my work was done and I got in my motel room and I noticed I was feeling contented and after what I had just been doing for four days I I asked myself, what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Um, I should be angry, upset. What is it? And I went out for dinner and I had a good evening. And I turned, the television set on in the motel later that night. And they had a special on the A&E Network. And I turned it on. It was about the prison I had just been in, mm. about their death penalty protocols And how swiftly people are put to death there. Then I was heading back home to Wyoming. I flew first to Denver. The Dalai Lama and uh, Desmond Tutu were there. Mm. And I wanted to hear them speak. And I was listening to the Dalai Lama. And a few people passed uh, questions up to his interpreter. And not I, but other people did. And you gotta, you got to love this scene. There's a Dalai Lama. He's got a uh, Colorado Rockies baseball cap on and some <laughs> Joe Biden Ray-Bans. And <laughs> sitting in his robe, he's chilling, he's happy. And someone had a question that the interpreter read to him and it said, why is it that in the United States, we have so much violence and so much murder And I perked up and I listened for the response. And he said, oh, thank you for easy question. Thank you. And he said, they are here to teach us a deeper level of compassion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's it. That's why I felt better after my time with him, because I never spent as much effort, expended as much effort trying to come to know someone, be present with someone, radically listen to them. My job was to explain his crime, not to excuse it. But I felt after four days of reaching into the deepest part of myself, the best part of myself, I understood him. Hmm. And that shifted some gears for me. And the next thing that happened, Raghu, was uh, I got a phone call one day in my Wyoming office And a friend from Canada called me and said, hey, I was thinking of you because I'm planning a trip to Africa to study shamanism. And we want a neurologist there. We want a professor there. We want a psychotherapist there and uh, a spiritual person, which was him. And let's expand our knowledge as a team there. I'd like to know if you'd be interested in going. And I said, sure, let's book it. And then my ego stepped in and said, uh Jerry you made that sound too easy um you, sh- you are you're to contemplate this you're to be a businessman uh, and you say well i need more details what will the cost be i knew i was going and i said i'll call you back uh in a couple days and the next morning i was on the phone saying tell me the cost and he told me and i said okay i'm going book mm-hmm. me and then the biggest shift of all occurred and starting to spend time with authentic, real shamanic healers and sangomas from Zulu land. That was powerful because these weren't like the neo-shamanic people we're dealing with today who go to weekend workshops and say, I am a shaman. These are people who have lived it, breathed it for decades and decades and being in their company one after the other, after the other was powerful and from different countries in africa then i went to central america south america the north of canada and i couldn't get enough of this refreshing new way of feeling that was so different than our training in psychology where we have a dsm you know the the diagnostic statistical Uh, manual which you know it spells out dissum and that's what we do we diss people (laughs) And so you know, we, we attach labels to them and freeze them in that identity. And I had shamans ask me questions like, why do you do that to people? Why do you call them names? We we teach our children not to do that. But you call people names for what reason? And I, I said, well, for money. Um, <laughs> We put them in a category and then we collect a fee and we make a living. We expand our Vita and we get rich and get that yacht we've always wanted. (laughs) And uh, so those are some of the shifts that occurred. But it just kept pulling me in deeper, deeper and deeper. And then the the last thing I did in in the past year was I went to visit the Kogi tribe in the mountains of Colombia, And they're a divining group of people. They asked me to come there in 2020 because they said, we have a message for you that we want you as a writer and a speaker to deliver to the world. And I booked the flight. I was ready to go. And that's when COVID happened. Uh And it stymied my plans. I couldn't go. So I had to cancel everything postponed until some months ago when I went there. And they said to me after climbing up 14,000 feet through the jungle up to where there's snow in Colombia, not far from the equator, I got there and their message was, we wanted to tell you that unless you changed your way of living on this land and with nature, unless you saw this world as a heart throbbing below us, and treated as a mother with respect. There was going to, they said, we wanted to warn you of a epidemic that was going to occur, where millions of you would die and be thrown off the earth. And then someone had already told them that the reason I couldn't come was COVID. And and so uh, there's different ways of knowing uh, uh, things about the world and about ourselves. And I find indigenous peoples have many, many ways of perceiving reality and understanding it. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. And uh, in the in the book, you talk about uh, the the lost elements of healing are, are personal beliefs, power of the mind, knowledge, use of plant medicines, and soulful presence as medicine, which is plus probably most closely connected to my own experience going to India with Ram Dass and all of that. And um, also important are thoughtfully orchestrated and dramatic rituals. This is something we have lost. Community support, the careful infusion of sacred mystery, the power of presence and loving kindness, and many other factors that will become apparent through this, this, this dissertation, this book. And you say your goal is to bridge diverse cultures. And uh, this very much uh, presents itself throughout this book. So I'm, I'm really happy to uh, talk to you today uh, about the potential that we have here to listen correctly to the wisdom that is at hand, indigenous wisdom, all over the world. Not just in South America, obviously. I mean, if you take the Tibetans, um, the, the the original tradition, there was the Bon tradition, which is an indigenous tradition, and then Padmasambhava <laughs> went there, and then it it just became a melting pot of some of the most incredible representation, in my mind, of what the truth is that we are living. Um, on this planet and in, in this incarnation so well,
0: when you just read that quote from the book did that resonate with your experience as well because i absolutely. identified perhaps six or eight key elements there
1: yeah absolutely um i mean loving kindness for instance just one seemingly power of presence and loving kindness to me is core absolutely a core teaching that i received in india that we received in india ramdas and other westerners that went back went there you know all those decades ago and to the his own ramdas in particular his departure the years before it before he died it was so centrally um Uh, the central tenet of what he was delivering at that time was loving awareness so taking loving kindness and joining it with awareness with mindfulness with coming from soulful presence as you put it so yeah right in the pocket gerald well
0: that i guess takes us back to the story about the serial killer in the prison um I rose to the occasion to connect with this man and I had to do it with a loving presence. And it, it didn't mean I had to like anything about what he did. But I think of Martin Luther King who said, the easier task in life between liking and loving is that of loving. And we can treat everyone with loving kindness or loving presence. And he said, and with respect and dignity. And what when we do that, King said, we'll end up with a double victory. Mm. And that's what I noticed when I got back to my St. Louis hotel room. It's like something has shifted in me. I tapped into a better part of me Mm. that I thought was a part of me. I should be ashamed of. Mm. And, uh, and then I, I, I've come to write about that in different ways as a, a skill of radical listening and sometimes when a patient would come in for psychotherapy and they're, you know, they're, they're paying for my time, I sometimes felt I got to keep the chatter going. I got to give them their money's worth and mm-hmm. talk to them and come up with wisdom and poignant phrases and whatnot. Sometimes what I found was most appreciated was me just hitting the pause buzz- button with them and saying, can we, can we just sit with that for a moment? I really want to think a bit more about what you just said to me. And then we have this radical silence, this radical listening, this radical presence. And somebody starts feeling safe enough to disclose and share. So I had to do some traveling and be around a whole variety of people from the most sacred, bear with this, but the most profane to people who did terrible things to others and somehow that raised up not a preachy judgmental shaming blaming part in me it softened my heart and helped me develop a more heartfelt presence and then when I started studying psychedelic medicines uh, that helped make your heart soft like MDMA I found that when you're in the company of somebody who's undergoing a treatment just if you're in the room observing everybody's changed by the observation yeah uh, everybody's changed by by being in that shared presence mm. so we're lifted up and that gets to the core point of like is there an us and them them a me and a, uh, a they or is it all we
1: mm. all us yeah that's so funny you say first of all we just came back from a retreat that we hold every uh, early December in Maui. We used to do it with Ramdas, and then we still do it. Uh, and he seems to hang out there a little bit. Um, but it was all—it was uh, relationship, interconnectivity, and interbeing was the theme of the. So you're speaking to exactly what we investigated with a bunch of different people, and and it also remind when you talk about rad, radical listening, it reminds me of a quote that I use all the time from Simone Weil, the French writer, um, the most generous act that you can do in this life is pay complete attention to somebody. How often don't we do that? How often are we in, you know, ADA, you know, just distracted and, you know, you're, someone you have a point of contact with someone in your you know phone watch what you know there's constant you can't even bring completion into the moment complete be here nowness into the moment you know and uh, and i'd like and we talked a lot about you just said it pause be here now in that moment in that uh, therapy session <laughs> that is extremely extremely important
0: that might be one of the few times someone feels like, oh, I am important, especially after perhaps a, a lot of abuse in their life. Yeah. They finally get acknowledged and feel accepted and heard. That alone is healing. They may not need a pill.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, I think of I think it was Luther Standing Bear. I'm not quite sure anymore. But a Native American man once said... Uh, we, we we native americans we we don't like your white man's medicine we prefer medicine that walks mm-hmm. and uh yeah, yeah we are the medicine and it yeah. isn't something you get at a walgreens
1: yeah <laughs> oh boy uh how about uh there's some great stories in here and there's one in particular maybe you'd recount it I, i'm sure um it's um when you were, I guess, uh, with a, a shaman named Mandaza, is I correct?
0: Um, I've been with a, a shaman Man- named Mandaza Kandemwa.
1: Um, yeah, and it was about you being uh, put into a pool of water. And uh, um, do you remember that story? You can tell it. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, because he talks about... Um, the, What caught me right away, I'm going, okay, wait a minute. You know, Gerald did this. It's like uh, ingest a handful of termite dung. Oh, shit. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Yeah. What was that all about? What happened? Tell that that story. That was about holy shit.
0: Um, (laughs) Well, he wanted to introduce me to the water spirits. style of healing and when I arrived in Zimbabwe at his location the first thing he said to me was I I slept the night through and then I got up the next morning and I was all set for him to pontificate and espouse wisdom and the like and I said so what are we going to do today and he said you will sit under that tree and then I will see you tomorrow (laughs) and I go In my brain, I'm going, you know how many thousands this cost me? All of a sudden, money was important, you know? (laughs) And I said, and just what do I do, Mandaza, under that tree? And he said, you communicate with it. Mm. And I said, could you just give me an example how I do this? And he said, you might say, I am here. How might I serve? Mm. I am here how might I serve? And I did that for a day. And at the, the level of service that came to my mind, you know, it started with people, it went to the tree, it went to the insects, uh, it went to the animals around me. And I won't forget the, the the submerging part in the water, but before that all happened, then he was he came to me the next day and Madasa was talking to me about all sorts of matters of peace and love. He was talking about Martin King, Gandhi and whatnot. Really? And while he was talking in this hut, a, a dove flew in, into the hut and landed on his shoulder. And he didn't blink an eye, he just kept talking. And I ran out to get a, a colleague of mine. I said, quick. Get the camera. Get a camera. And I'm standing outside the hut, and I say, Mandaza, I'll be right back. I was so caught up with the magic of that moment. Mm. And when I was waiting for the camera to be r- r- run back to me, out of the sky came a second dove and landed on my head. Mm. And the they picture. took a picture of that, yeah. and I walked in with my dove, and we sat down with Mandaza and his dove, and he said, we want to connect you with nature and the animal world, uh, the I am of of this world, as he called it. And he said, I I want you to go into the, the, the pool and go through a ritual, or actually a ceremony with rituals beforehand. And he said, the first thing I want you to do is meet this woman who had a dream a couple nights ago that you were coming to our country. She's a A shaman and she walked into town for a day and I saw her this morning she was sleeping on the grass outside and I recognized her and I must say Raghu she was a eerie looking woman
1: and how so uh her eyes
0: were penetrating um I, I don't know how to say it other than how I felt in her company I felt a little apprehensive, or maybe fear is a better word, a little bit of distrust, because she was trying to edge her way into being with me. And she went into this little room, outdoor room, with Mandaza. And they were in there for quite a while. And then finally, Mandaza called for me. I went in that room. And there she was with her eyes rolled back, laying on a concrete floor, snarling she had become a, a shape-shifted into leopard and i can remember the, the sound exactly it was i can't do it loudly on my blood the mics but it was just like a and she was calling for me and she said where is this man's Silver ring that he always wears on the second finger on his right hand, which is something we wear in Wyoming, which is an elk tooth (coughs) ivory. Excuse me. (coughs) An elk tooth ivory. Elk tooth. Uh But I didn't bring any bling with me to Zimbabwe. But she had said, Something's missing from your hand. And then she said, Why do you live so far away from your son? Who was in Salt Lake, and I was nine hours away. And I go, "How do you know I have a son? How do you know where he lives? How do you know about that ring?" And then Mandasa said, "Now it's time to go into the pond to begin your water spirits ceremony, and you'll be submerged." And she kept following me, shadowing me. Wow! And as I walked into the water, she walked in behind me, and I'm like, quite honestly, I was thinking, "I don't want you here. You're making me uncomfortable." And then he said, he signaled to me to go down. And I submerged myself in the water. Pretty soon, there was somebody touching me underwater. And when she touched me, I started convulsing. And I got scared. I knew it was her. I got scared and I rose to the surface. And as did she. And mendaza looked at me and he had this big smile. And it's like, all is well. You could just tell he was saying any he, and he signal, down again. Each time I went down, she grabbed me. And I started having like these convulsions going through my body. I'd come up again, just shaking and shivering. Four times we did that. Hmm. And uh, the fourth time I came up and... Mandaza said, I would like to introduce you, sea lion, to some of the people here. And he he felt I had taken on some other qualities of the animal world. And, but, you know, before we even went into water, you mentioned something. He said, I want to, he wanted to put dollops of, of a mixture, a concoction all over my body. Like, like, it looked like whipped cream dollops, but it wasn't that. And then he said, he had me extend my hands and he filled each hand with muti, which is medicine. And he said, lick it and eat it. And I started with my right hand and I was licking what was in my hand, and it was just gross and disgusting. <laughs> and and yeah. when he wasn't looking, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I turned my hand and let it dumped a little bit on the ground. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I thought, I'll just, you know, eat a token amount. Yeah. And he said, he looked at my hand, and he goes, oh, you need more. (laughs) I thought I gave you more than that. So he dumped them more in my hand. So I realized my ploy wasn't going to work, but -hmm. that was a special medicine. It was termite dung. And then I said, he told me what it was. And then I said, you know, pray tell what's in this other hand, my left hand. He said, I don't think I'll share that. So if he would share the termite dung and not the other, I was wondering, (laughs) what is it I'm ingesting? So I went underwater. I started convulsing. I came out of the water. It was winter there, which is pleasant. I sat on the side of the pool, and he said, close your eyes. And I closed my eyes, and I began having visionary experiences, and animals were coming to me. And they were always coming in the upper right hand you know view if you will eyes closed and they would come into clarity just sharp like i could see every eyelash or every hair and then they'd fade out animal after animal and at one point i remember this colorful mandrel coming i don't normally think about mandrels but there was a mandrel and these animals were coming and going. And then I thought, okay, I'm a psychologist. I got to check, see if I'm oriented to space and time. <laughs> <laughs> so I opened my eyes and I looked around and I was naming the people there, comforting myself. And then I'm going, okay, you're in Zimbabwe. You're with Mandaza Kondemwa. All's well. closed my eyes and the experience resumed. To this day, it still happens. Wow. And... The only thing I've ever observed similar to that is people under the influence of MDMA, they have animal visitors, and oftentimes after perhaps three treatments, they say that they feel united with all of nature, all of mankind, all of the animal world, or as the Lakota people would say, matakyasin, all oh, my relatives, mm. I'm one with them all. So there's this unity consciousness That was unfolding with mandasa i've seen it unfold in other settings uh you you know with psychedelics and also with empathogens like mdma so yeah Mm. that's that's the story of the
1: wow that's quite a story And, (laughs) and that uh the woman shaman he you were told that she came here because she knew you would be there, and and came there and just stayed overnight until you came. Yeah, and it was from. I mean, a it dream. sounds like an Indian, you know, like experience that I might have had in India as well with this this kind of precognition. And uh,
0: yes, yes, and it was more profound when I was in Ecuador in the Amazon. I don't know if you saw the story in the book about Juan Fidel, the man with the severe head injury.
1: But no, please tell it.
0: Oh, that 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 shifted my world. Instead of teaching indigenous healing methods and theories and philosophy, I finally became a believer in what I was teaching. Here's the deal. I went, I don't even know why I picked Ecuador, why I was, what brought me there. But there I was, and I went into the Amazon with a, two interpreters to visit the Achuar people. Now, you would think if I were taking a trip, think of precognition, though. but if I were taking a trip, wouldn't you think I'd kind of plan it out a little bit and decide where I'm going, who I want to be with, who I want to visit? No, I, I just went and I went into this area where I met perhaps the most famous shaman in that area of Ecuador. People come from miles and miles by canoe for healings from him. And my guide, in one of my interpreters, figured I'd want to go there and meet him. I went there. I did. And while we were there, it was the rainy season. Of course, that is never the time to go there. So I, you know, the planner that I am, I went. And I saw clouds approaching from two directions and big storms. And like, how do storms come from two places? And they came together and they merged. And it was a torrential downpour like I've never known. And rivulets, little rivers started forming around me. And I had my tent built on a mound. And there was no water anywhere around. Pretty soon, there's water all around. Everything is flooded. And my tent is maybe ten inches above the water, and this famous shaman Rafael, uh, who knew I was there, said, and he had been told stories about me. I don't know if they were true or exaggerated, mm-hmm. but they, my interpreter made it out as if I was some sort of great shaman, which I'm not. But he said, "Have Yeri." in their language have you ever come with me the flooding was occurring he said get in my canoe we went down this tributary of the amazon roaring down there he said you must go to the sacred waterfall with me we got to the we beached the canoe i had boots on there hip boots there was so much mud my feet would go down and I couldn't pull them out. But he was insistent that I keep going with him to the sacred waterfall where you get healing powers from the ancestors and the anaconda snake. Mm -hmm. So I tried to keep up with this older man and it was really difficult. And finally we got separated and I saw all these, what I thought were snakes swimming by me in on the flooded area and the turns out they're worms of some sort and they're just really really big worms and i lost track of raphael but i could hear in the distance the water rushing and i thought i must be close to the waterfall and then he was out of sight and i thought i gotta cross this river to get to the other side because his tracks were leading up to there and he obviously crossed so oh, I struggled. It, the, the river wanted to throw me over the falls, which was right to my side. And so I leaned into it. I had a stick to try and get my balance. I made it to the other side. And there was Raphael down below the falls, naked, and waiting for me. Got down there. He's, he had me stand under the powerful waterfall. And logs and things were coming over. Jeez. But when I stood under it, nothing hit me but water. And then he had a, like a little cup, and he spit into this cup, and he was stirring with his finger, and he, he showed me us like snorting, and he snorted some up his nose, and he, he tur- had me tip my head back, and I snorted some of this, was some people call it rapé, ristica nicotina, which is a powerful tobacco that helps you have visionary experiences now remember these are the achuar people this is the notorious dream culture of the world Mm. i didn't even know it until i got there and so he said sometimes this medicine will help you dream and have dreams that will guide your your next day and what you should be doing you need to act on it and act on it immediately if you have any so we we did that we came back home he said now, get some rest. I went to my tent and crawled into it with all the fire ants. And um, I went to sleep. He said through the interpreters, we will awaken you at 4 a.m. for the vomit ceremony.
1: <laughs>
0: because and it's like, oh, sign me up. Can you make it any earlier? And, and at 4 a.m., I was awakened by my Achuar interpreter. And he said, get up now, because we're going to go to the vomit ceremony, the village president. It's kind of like the tribal leader. It's going to be at his hut. And every morning in that culture, they get up, drink massive amounts of wayusa tea, purge with it, it, just vomit everything up. And so you start the day cleansed and pure. So we're sitting there in the dark, fire going, kids running around. They're all coming for the... Vomit ceremony as I call it, but it's a dream interpretation ceremony. And on the way, walking to that location through the jungle, I'm walking with Julian, my Spanish interpreter. And Julian said, Jerry, did you have any dreams last night? Because we're going to the dream interpretation ceremony that they have every morning. I said, No, no. I said, you know, if I have, if I don't retrieve a dream when I first wake up. Um, it's gone Mm. and I'm walking through the jungle with the Achuar interpreter and with the, my Spanish interpreter. And all of a sudden I stopped in my tracks with my headlamp on dark. And now that you've paved the way with the word, I just started saying, holy shit, (laughs) holy shit. It was like a dream was downloading. And I was seeing it all with all its details. And the third time, I went, holy shit. The Achuar interpreter said, what is Jerry saying? And it was interpreted to him as sacred excrement, (laughs) which made no sense. What I dreamt was of seeing my father, who had Parkinson's, in a back bedroom of my home or walk into it and he had trouble walking, and I heard him go in, and I heard sloshing of water, lots of sloshing, and I "I wonder what's going on in there, and I went to check, and there in my dream, I saw my father in the water, and a kermode, or a white spirit bear, which it's a black bear, not a, it's all white, but it's a black bear, (laughs) that family, and it's not a, it's a distinct Hereditary type, um, not an albino, but it's known as a spirit bear of the Simpsian people of British Columbia. Hmm. And it's a healing bear. And in my dream, there's a white, black bear approaching my father. And then I leave the room. Eventually, my father comes out, and I can remember seeing his pockets all full of air bubbles and he's dripping wet and he's walking. Um, and I go, what is going on? And so I went back there again, and there's the bear. And I walked into the water, and it came up to me. We embraced. And I told that dream at the circle that morning because they insist that I speak to. Because they have like almost like Starbucks, they have different sizes of dreams. You know, small, medium, large. <laughs> this would be a large <laughs> Tall, tall dream. <laughs> yeah, Grande. I don't know. <laughs> But I told it, and, and I got to tell you, after I did my vomiting, and there are vampire bats swooping down around me. And I told it, and Rafael, the shaman, came by, and he goes, hmm. He talked to my Spanish interpreter, and he's like, hmm. He said, bring him over to my healing hut when you're finished here. Well, now the sun is coming up, and there's a man who'd been there for two days with a massive head injury. And he was in so much pain, he couldn't urinate, he couldn't defecate, he couldn't eat. Everything hurt. He was laying there, prostate, on this lattice-made kind of bed, made of, you know, like bamboo strips. And he couldn't talk, he couldn't get up. And we talked with other people about him, and he obviously had severe brain injuries, probably brain edema, but just so much pain. And he was he was giving up and dying, and Raphael had treated him with no luck, or no no benefits. Um, and Raphael just came over to me and said, "This man has head injury. You will heal him." I have to go harvest some ayahuasca. Bye bye. <laughs> He's gone, and there I am with one of my traveling companions named Stephen, who was a CEO of a publishing company. And Stephen had said, "I want to go on with you on one of your trips because I wonder if you make some of this stuff up." <laughs> and so Steve's with me, and we see this man, and I said, "Okay, I guess I'll heal him." Um, it's like we we didn't have radio equipment, we didn't have a landing strip nearby there were no, it was hours away from any community that would have had a hospital. And Stephen's saying, we got to get him to a hospital. He needs brain scans. He's going to need to have some pressure relief from his brain. I said, no, I think if we take him out of the jungle, which is his relative, he may die. And it was interpreted back to me like, yes, you can't take him away from here. So I just, I decided I would be with him and give some Loving, kind presence mm-hmm. to his life. One of the basic tenets of shamanism is that the first thing you do with any patient is you remove all obstacles to healing, and almost always fear is the number one obstacle. Oh, he was scared. He knew he was going to die. So I, I said to Stephen. Who was grumpy and lecture me on ethics and how I'd lose my license and whatnot? I said, "Go away," and and I said, "Go back to the tent and get my backpack. Let's see if I have any brain medicine." Now, of course, I didn't have any such thing, but everything was being interpreted to Juan Fidel, the patient, and he came back with my a backpack of mine. I opened it up and I did this big aha look like. Ah, Yes, it's here—the medicine—and and I did sixteen different things that came to me in my dream that I felt would be a part of healing.
1: And which one dream? Of a, the dream with your with your dad?
0: Yeah. After that dream came down, it's like uh, information was downloading on how to heal people. I didn't even know I was going to be asked to heal someone that day, but. In this culture, that's how things come together. And they tell you, act on your dream if it's a big dream. Mm -hmm. Well, that was. So I started doing what came to me in the dream. I had him speaking in foreign tongues. I had matched my him, I had him match his breathing with mine. I had him speak in Anishinaabe language. In that culture, you men don't touch men unless maybe they're getting the fisticuffs. And I reached out for his, I had them sit him up and put him on a stool across from me. And I made my knees touch his, saw how that went. And then I reached out my hands and he grabbed my hands and he just squeezed. He was so afraid, like, Hmm. who are you and what are you doing here? And they interpreted to him that this man is a healer, great powers. Raphael says so. So we had all these Placebo effects in place. Um, I gathered a community of people around him, and especially young children. And I said, This man's going to get healthy and he's going to walk soon. Everybody, stick around, smile, be happy. And I said to Juan Fidel, Think of the person in your family who has the biggest and best smile. And the interpreter came back with the message his eldest son. I said, Now think of him watching you stand up and walk and the smile that will be on his face. So all this suggestion, expectation and whatnot. I gave him his medicine, a vitamin C pill and a COQ10, um, an antioxidant. And I, I, I used cautionary language. I said, now, be sure and tell him it might take some minutes before this has an impact. It won't be instant, but I said, "Let's in that time frame, let's give thanks for the healing that's about to occur." So my interpreter from Ojai was giving a, like a thankful meditational prayer. Here's we're giving thanks for the healing that's about to occur. The kids are excited; they're watching. They're circled around us. We got all the good energy. I told Stephen to go away, and, and then I said, "Please stand up." And he stood up for the first time. And, and he, he's, he was just like getting his orientation. And he walked out of the hut and he looked up to the sun, which is in that animistic culture, their God. He looked up at the sun. I walked up behind him, grabbed his arms. And we both raised our arms up like we're reaching to the sun. And again, we gave thanks for the healing that just occurred. Well, some more things happened that day and that night, but I went back to my tent. Just a It was just a mesh tent, no sidewalls, and in the night, in the jungle, all of a sudden there was a face next to mine, because this is a little biker's tent ahead. There's a face next to me speaking in a language I didn't understand, and I got scared, and I was like, I hope somebody wakes up, you know, I hope Stephen or the interpreter wakes up, and they did. And they came over and I heard speaking in their language. And then my interpreter said, it's Juan Fidel. He didn't know if you'd be gone by tomorrow morning when he arose and he's going home, he's healed. And uh, he wanted to say, thank you. We flew out, Uh, they're watching with radar when they could fly in and out with all the torrential downpours. So it turns out that next morning, We could hear a plane flying in. We knew it had to be for us. It must have been a window of opportunity. We took all our muddy stuff and threw it on the plane, jumped on it fast. The pilot said, we got to get out of here quickly. And we taxied down this muddy strip in the jungle. And we're turning the plane around to try and take off. And out of the jungle comes this man smiling and waving. It's Juan Fidel. He's just happy. Six months later, I'm back in Ecuador. Oh, I got got to tell you this. We got out of the jungle. We flew to the nearest town. And my Spanish interpreter pulled out his smartphone to reconnect with the world. And he just stood away from us with his back to us and kept staring at his phone. And he he wasn't scrolling. He wasn't doing anything. He was just staring. And finally, after a long wait, I walked up to Julio and I said, what's wrong? He said, you're not going to believe this. And then he said, well, maybe you will. He said, but a friend of mine, I haven't been in touch with for a long, long time, just was thinking of me and thought he should send me a message. And he said he had just learned about a kind of bear in Canada that's white and that has healing powers. And he thought Julian might be interested in that. And Julian's going, how would he know that? And then. In the dream I had, my father, this white bear, had a little tiny tan or brown patch on its neck. I remembered it. Mm. And I had mentioned it in my dream ceremony activity. And sure enough, Julian turned and shared his smartphone a photograph that was attached to his message of a Kermode bear, a spirit bear, and it had a little brown patch. And it just—it was a poof event for Julian. I said, "In six months, I'll be back, Julian." I got to check on Juan Fidel. We came back, we got there, um, we canoed to the area where we thought he might live. We got nearby and we said to people there, "Do you know a Juan Fidel? Where we might find him? Where does he live?" And they said, "He does not live. He died. He had a bad accident, caused a head injury while he was boating, and he died." And I I was like, oh, damn. I was just crestfallen. Hmm. I said, well, we're here. Let's canoe to where his family resides. I want them to know I was with him, trying to tent him. We canoed over there, beached the canoe, walked up through the brush, peeked through the brush. There was a hut there with a shelter next to it. There stood Juan Fidel. He had a dream the night before that I was coming. So he gathered his family together to meet the man that he says saved his life. That's when things really shifted for me, Raghu. Um, that's when I started believing what I was preaching and what I was teaching. Mm-hmm.
1: But what were they doing saying you died?
0: Well, his injury was so severe
1: that they thought that, that he had that died. They
0: shipped him away to Raphael, his only last hope of living. And they, everybody just knew he was going to die, and even Raphael couldn't help it. Couldn't help him. So what we did was we awakened the inner healer in this man. He healed himself, mm. and it's a beautiful thing when it happens, and when yeah. you can be present for that. Mm. I got to tell you though, Then I went. I said I got to go see Raphael now, and they said you can't see him. And I said why? And they said oh he got shot in the head. I go what? They said, yeah, he was canoeing, the same canoe the two of us were in. He was canoeing down the river, and somebody, he was supposed to save the life of this man's infant that was brought to him, and he couldn't save the child's life. So the man was hiding in the brush a few days later, and as Raphael went by, he shot him in the head twice. Raphael healed himself, and now he's notoriously, he was notorious as a great healer to begin with, but now they say, "Man, this this fellow's impervious to even bullets, and he heals himself." And so now he's in, flooded with patients.
1: <laughs> I bet.
0: And I go to the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> I think not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, those are incredible story. Wow, Joe.
0: Life changing for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I in the book you you say dreams are. Uh, in many indigenous cultures and uh, dreams are regarded as the raw and true reality by contrast our waking existence is referred to as a quote unquote cultural nightmare by one of the traditional healers uh, it's regarded as a filtered and adulterated realm distorted by social influences
0: that's what psychology did to me mm had an adulterated brain i was filtering things just through my way of being taught how to see the world but i'll go back to our some of our opening comments i those are the only ways i had of knowing of diagnosing of treating write a script send them to you know the walgreens and that's that's and then talk to them comfort them and there's so much more So my task, as I see it now, is to teach how we can bridge the indigenous with the traditional healing, with the more contemporary healing, because there's much they both can teach us. And in the book, I give some examples, too, of how I used um, brainwave technology to heal a teenage boy up in northern Canada Mm. who was said to have ADHD, fetal alcohol syndrome, all sorts of things. And so I, he said, Jerry, he saw this gadget I had. He said, would you wire me up? Well, he asked for it. His adoptive parents approved of it. And sure enough, he went off into the dream world, into what they call their spirit world. He met his two deceased parents, mother and father, at a cemetery. And he flew on the wings of an eagle in this altered state with just electrical alteration. And then Hmm. he flew back and as he was flying back on the wings of the eagle to his hometown the, i saw his hands gripping like like almost like talons like gripping to the on the eagle and the and then he tilted because the eagle was tilting and the eagle threw him off and he soared to the ground and on the ground in this altered state he could see a shaman from his community and his adoptive parents waiting for him and he concluded wow, I've got, had a great life. I still have my natural parents in the spirit world. I have my adoptive parents in this world. And the Last time I was in his community, this is like 10 years later, he, he always knew when I was coming to Hollow Water, Manitoba, Canada, he ha- would have his way of divining this mm. this supposedly damaged person. And he would tell people, Jerry's coming tomorrow. And People would say, well, we haven't heard from him. I don't think so. And then I'd show up. And he goes, I told you.
1: <laughs>
0: and I was up there just before COVID. It was the highest, the warmest night I had there was 35 below zero. and And he was now an adult living in a distant community, out of touch with his people in this village. I was in Hollow Water. And on my last day there, I was about to leave. And they said, come over to the healing center now. I went over there and I walked in. I go, yeah, what's up? I was just going to say goodbye to them and leave. And I said, but why is it you called me back? And one of the healers there just went with his head like, check it out over there. Sitting in the corner of the room on a sofa was Daniel, the the once little boy, now grown man and he said, Jerry, I brought a drum. I want a drum for you, and he started singing and drumming, and people started gathering around like, what is going on here? And he said, I remember you said to me after the eagle ride that it was a transformation ride, and that no longer am I a damaged boy, that one day I would become a shamanic healer. Well, Jerry, I want you to know I'm healing people with alcohol problems now by singing and dancing and drumming with
1: them. It's all real. It's it's such blessings. Yeah. Such gifts. I mean, just the uh, opportunity to make people aware, again, of the sacredness of all of our lives, the interconnectivity the sacredness, us getting back to uh, the power that uh, we all hold deep within. And you said it at one point, the the biggest thing we have to deal with is fear. And so giving people an opportunity to understand and be aware of. And, you know, we have lots of great Eastern practices around mindfulness and so on that can really help identify uh, motivations fears and um uh, and really transform them so i think you know,
0: don't you find that fear closes down our options
1: absolutely 100%. you know with
0: juan fidel he was so afraid he knew he was going to die which is was going to kill him then and yeah. so i we sometimes look up to the heavens or they say to our grandmother moon or grandfather sky or to their version in the attra community of their god and we see un- unlimited space up there, which is a symbol for unlimited possibilities. And that's where the great mystery comes in, as they call it in yeah. Ojibwa culture. Great mystery, great spirit. This unknown element that's beyond our human ability to comprehend that can lift us up and heal us. Mm. And I've had Native people say to me, if there's a disease on Earth... There's a remedy on earth. Search for it. And now what I find is we search within for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think once we encounter and transform this fear, it's through a deep trust, intuitive trust. And that's what I believe uh, indigenous wisdom has to offer in spades. And uh, I'm happy. So the book is called "Awakening the Healing Soul." Everybody, Indigenous Wisdom for Today's World. We'll have it uh, linked up in the show notes so you can get. When did it come out, Joe?
0: It's two years ago, right? When COVID struck, so there was never any interviews, book promotions,
1: nothing. Nothing. Yeah, right. I was just sitting still. (laughs) Yeah, podcasts. There are podcasts. That's yeah, uh, and there were some webinars, but yeah,
0: yeah, it's getting the message out verbally that really does help
1: yeah, get the message uh,
0: of the book out
1: yeah these wonderful stories you just told uh, do more than just about anything because it's all about people want stories they want to be able to connect through stories rather than sometimes too pedantic kind of uh, deliveries around uh, you know these kinds of subjects and so on so I really thank you for being here. I mean, we could go on. We'll have to try and do this again and and go through some other, uh, some of the other uh, topics that you bring up in this book that really allow people to allow us to get back to, uh, a sacred nature. And, uh, so, uh, everybody, this will all be available. Uh, the links here and, uh, to, um, uh, Gerald's work and uh this is uh mind rolling on be here now network go to be and uh take advantage of all the wonderful teachers that we we have uh uh on this network and we, we've gerald we have done some i've done some myself wonderful things around indigenous wisdom and and also um around, of course, envi- it's totally connected to environmental stuff that is going on, the degradation um, that we're all trying to address. So it's really important work. Uh, in fact, we are starting an indigenous uh, wisdom podcast with uh, a, um, a young woman named Nat Kelly, who uh, her lineage goes back to the Quechua people, I believe, in Peru and uh yeah so i'm excited for that and you guys look out for it just uh go and sign up on the email list at be here now network and uh yeah i'll probably uh, tell her about uh, you gerald and see if you guys can get together i think you have some common experiences
0: i'd love that and you know maybe i'll close this off today by pretending i'm on National Public Radio and say, and say, This is a good time to think about making a donation to you and your organization, which we've done, but I, I want to make
1: another one. I hope other people
0: will support your efforts.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. that. We, so again, thanks for being here. This is Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and we shall see you on Mind Rolling next week. Thank you. Thank you, Gerald. Welcome.